0: Ninety three by Victor Hugo. Part three, Book Two, continued. They had not seen each other for many years, but their hearts had never been separated. They recognized each other as though they had parted only the day before. A field hospital had been improvised in the Dole town hall. Simordan was placed on a bed in a little room next to the big room occupied by the other wounded men. The surgeon, who had sewed up the gash, put an end to the outpourings of emotion between the two men by saying that Simordan must be allowed to sleep. Gauvin, moreover, had to go off to attend to those countless details which are the duties and concerns of victory. Simordan was left alone, but he did not sleep. He had two fevers, that of his wound and that of his joy. He was not asleep, and yet it did not seem to him that he was awake was it possible? His dream had come true. Simordan was one of those who do not believe in extraordinary good fortune, but he had it. He had found Gauvin again. Gauvin had been a child when he left him, and he was now a man. He had found him tall, formidable, and bold. He had found him triumphant, and triumphant for the people. In Vendée, Gauvin was the point of support for the Revolution, and it was he, Simordan, who had made that pillar for the Republic. That victor was his pupil. What he saw shining from that young face, reserved perhaps for the Republican pantheon, was his own thought. His disciple, the child of his mind, was now a hero and would soon be a glory. It seemed to Simordan that he saw his own soul made into a spirit. He had just seen how Govan made war. He was like Chiron after he had seen Achilles fight. There is a mysterious analogy between the priest and the centaur, for the priest is a man with only half of his body. All the circumstances of that occurrence, mingled with the sleeplessness caused by his wound, filled Simordan with a kind of mysterious intoxication. A young, magnificent destiny was rising, and what added to his profound joy was his awareness that he had full power over that destiny. One more success like the one he had just seen, and he would have only to say a word to make the Republic place Gauvin in command of a whole army. Nothing dazzles like the astonishment of seeing everything succeed. It was a time when everyone had his military dream. Everyone wanted to create a general. Danton wanted to create Westermann. Marat wanted to create Rossignol. Hébert wanted to create Ronsin, Robespierre wanted to destroy them all. Why not go then? thought Simordain. And he abandoned himself to his reverie. The unbounded lay before him. He went from one hypothesis to another. All obstacles vanished. When one has climbed the first rung of that ladder, one does not stop. It is an infinite ascent. One begins with man and reaches the stars. A great general controls only armies. A great military leader also controls ideas. Simordan dreamed of Govan as a great military leader. It seemed to him, for dreams move swiftly, that he could see Govan on the ocean, driving away the English, on the Rhine chastising the northern kings, in the Pyrenees pushing back Spain in the Alps, signaling Rome to arise. There were two men in Simorden, a tender man and a somber man. They were both satisfied. For, the inexorable being his ideal, when he saw Gauvin magnificent, he also saw him terrible. Simordan thought of everything that would have to be destroyed before construction could begin. This is certainly no time for softness, he thought. Gauvin will be up to the mark. He imagined Gauvin crushing the shadows underfoot, armored with light, with the glow of a meteor on his forehead, spreading the great ideal wings of justice, reason, and progress, with a sword in his hand. He saw him as an angel, but a destroying angel. At the height of this reverie, which was almost an ecstasy, he heard through the half-open door someone talking in the main room of the field hospital, next to his own room. He recognized Govan's voice. Despite long years of absence, that voice had always been in his ear, and the voice of the child can be heard in the voice of the man. He listened. There was a sound of footsteps. A soldier said, "'Sir, this is the man who shot at you.' He dragged himself into a cellar while no one was watching him. We found him. Here he is." Simordan then heard this dialogue between Govan and the man. Are you wounded? I'm well enough to be shot. Put this man in a bed. Dress his wounds. Take care of him. Heal him. I want to die. You'll live. You tried to kill me in the name of the king. I'm granting you pardon in the name of the Republic." A shadow passed over Simordan's brow. He moved abruptly, as though he had awakened with a start. "'and murmured to himself with a kind of sinister dejection. "'It's true. He's merciful.'" A cut heals quickly, but there was someone more seriously wounded than Simordan. It was the woman who had been shot, and whom the beggar Telmarc had picked up from the great pool of blood at the farm of Erebon Michel Michelle Fleshard was in even greater danger than Telmarc had thought— A hole in her shoulder blade corresponded to the wound above her breast, and when a bullet had broken her collarbone, another one had gone through her shoulder. But since her lungs had not been hit, she was able to recover. Telmark was a philosopher, a word which, as it is used by peasants, designates a man who is something of a doctor, something of a surgeon, and something of a sorcerer. He took care of the wounded woman in his animal den and on his seaweed bed, with those mysterious things called simples. Thanks to him, she lived. Her collarbone knitted together, the holes in her chest and shoulder healed. Within a few weeks, she was convalescent. One morning, she was able to walk out of the den, leaning on Telmark. She sat down in the sunlight under the trees. Telmark knew little about her since the wounds in her chest had required her to be silent. During what had seemed to be the death agony which preceded her recovery, she had said no more than a few words. Whenever she had tried to talk, he had made her remain silent. But she had a stubborn reverie, and he had seen in her eyes the comings and goings of poignant thoughts. That morning she was strong. She could almost walk unaided. A cure is a paternity. And Telmark watched her happily. That kindly old man began to smile. He spoke to her. Well, you're standing up today. You have no more wounds. Except in my heart, she said. Then, after a pause, so you have no idea where they are? Who? My children. The word so had expressed a whole world of things. It meant. Since you haven't told me anything about them, since you've been with me for so many days without even mentioning them, since you stop me whenever I try to break the silence, and since you seem to be afraid I'll talk about them, you must have nothing to tell me about them. Often in her fever, her bewilderment, and her delirium, she had called her children, and she had seen clearly, for delirium makes its observations, that the old man did not answer her. It was true that Telmark did not know what to tell her. It is not easy to speak to a mother about her lost children. And then, what did he know? Nothing. He knew that a mother had been shot, that he had found her lying on the ground, that she had been almost a corpse when he had picked her up, that this corpse had three children, and that the de Lantnac had taken away the three children after having had their mother shot. All his information ended there what had become of those children? Were they even alive? He knew from having inquired that there were two boys and a little girl who was barely weaned. Nothing more. He asked himself a host of questions about the unfortunate group, but he could not answer them. The local people he questioned had limited themselves to shaking their heads. Monsieur de Lantenac was a man of whom they were not eager to talk. They were not eager to talk of Lantenac or to Talmark. Peasants have their own kind of suspicion. They did not like Tellmark. Tellmark the beggar was a disquieting man. Why was he always looking up at the sky? What did he do, and what did he think during his long hours of immobility? He was strange, there could be no doubt of it. In that region in the throes of war, conflagration, and combustion, where all men had only one affair— devastation, and one work, carnage, and where they vied with one another to see who would burn a house, slaughter a family, massacre a post, or sack a village, and where they thought of nothing except ambushing, trapping, and killing one another, that solitary man, absorbed in nature, as though submerged in the immense peace of things, gathering herbs and plants, concerned only with flowers, birds, and stars. "'was obviously dangerous. "'He had clearly lost his reason. "'He did not lie in ambush behind bushes. "'He did not shoot at anyone. "'Hence a certain fear around him. "'That man is mad,' said those who walked past him. "'Telmark was more than isolated. "'He was shunned. "'People asked him few questions and gave him few answers.' He had therefore not been able to obtain as much information as he wished. The war had spread elsewhere, the armies had gone to fight further on, the Marquis de had vanished from the horizon, and, in Telmark's frame of mind, the war had to step on him before he could become aware of it. After the words, "'My children,' Telmark had stopped smiling, and the mother had begun thinking. What was taking place in her soul?' it was like the bottom of an abyss. Suddenly she looked at Telmark and cried out again, almost in a tone of anger, "'My children!' Telmark bowed his head as though he were guilty. He thought of the Marquis de Lantinac, who was certainly not thinking of him, and who probably no longer even knew he existed. He realized this, and he said to himself, "'When a lord is in danger, He knows you. When he's out of danger, he no longer knows you. He then asked himself, But then why did I save that Lord? And he answered himself, Because he's a man. He was thoughtful for a time. Finally, he asked himself, Am I sure of that? And he repeated his bitter words, If I had only known. This whole adventure overwhelmed him for he saw a kind of enigma in what he had done. He meditated painfully. So a good deed can also be evil, he thought. He who saves the wolf kills the lamb. He who mends the vulture's wing is responsible for his talons. He felt that he was in fact guilty. The mother's unconscious anger was right. And yet, having saved that mother, consoled him for having saved the Marquis. But what about the children? The mother was also thinking. The reflections of those two people moved along, side by side, and may have encountered one another, without any exchange of words, in the shadows of reverie. Meanwhile her gaze, in the depths of which was darkness, again fixed itself on Telmarc. But it can't happen like this, she said. "'Shh,' said Talmark, putting his finger to his lips. "'You were wrong to save me,' she went on. "'And I hold it against you. "'I'd rather be dead, because I'm sure I'd see them. "'I'd know where they are. "'They wouldn't see me, but I'd be with them. "'A dead woman must be able to protect the living.' "'He took her arm and felt her pulse. "'Be calm, or you'll bring back your fever.' "'She asked him, almost harshly, "'When can I leave?' "'Leave? Yes. When will I be able to walk? "'Never, if you're not reasonable. Tomorrow, if you are. "'What do you mean by being reasonable? "'Having confidence in God.' "'God, where has he put my children?' "'She was as though distraught. Her voice became very gentle. "'You see, I can't stay like this,' she said. "'You've never had any children.' and I have. That makes a difference. You can't judge something when you don't know what it is. You've never had any children, have you? No, replied Telmark. That's all I've ever had. Without my children, what am I? I wish someone would explain to me why I don't have my children. I feel that something is happening, since I don't understand. They killed my husband, and they shot me. But I still don't understand." "'There, there. Your fever is coming back,' said Telmark. "'Don't talk any more.' She looked at him and fell silent. From that day onward she no longer spoke. Telmark was obeyed more than he wanted to be. She spent long hours at the foot of the old tree, in a state of stupefaction. She thought and said nothing. Silence offers a kind of shelter to simple souls that have undergone the sinister deepening of sorrow. She seemed to give up all effort to understand. There is a stage at which despair becomes unintelligible to the person who feels it. Telmark examined her, deeply moved. In the presence of her suffering, that old man had womanly thoughts. "'Oh, yes,' he said to himself. Her lips don't speak, but her eyes do. And I can clearly see what her one idea is. She was once a mother, and now she's not. She once nursed her children, and now she can't. She can't resign herself. She thinks about the little baby she was suckling not long ago. She thinks and thinks and thinks. It must indeed be delightful to feel a pink little mouth drawing your soul from your body, and making a life for itself with your life. He, too, was silent, for he realized the impotence of words before such dejection. The silence of a fixed idea is terrible. And how can one make a mother listen to reason when she has such a fixed idea? Motherhood cannot turn back. One does not argue with it. What makes a mother sublime is the fact that she is a kind of animal. The maternal instinct is divinely animal. A mother is no longer a woman. She is a female. Her children are her young. Hence there is in a mother something inferior and superior to reasoning. A mother is guided by an unerring instinct. The immense shadowy will of creation is in her and leads her. She has a blindness, filled with clear-sightedness. Telmark now wanted to make that wretched woman speak. He did not succeed in doing so. Once he said to her, Unfortunately, I'm old and can no longer do much walking. I come to the end of my strength sooner than to the end of my path. After a quarter of an hour, my legs refuse to go on, and I have to stop. Otherwise, I could go with you. "'Actually, however, it may be good that I can't. "'I'd be more dangerous to you than useful. "'I'm tolerated here, but the Blues suspect me as a peasant, "'and the peasants suspect me of being a sorcerer.' "'He waited for her to answer. "'She did not even raise her eyes. "'A fixed idea ends in either madness or heroism. "'But of what heroism is a poor peasant woman capable? "'None. "'She can be a mother.' and that is all. Michelle Flechard sank further into her reverie each day. Telmark observed her. He tried to give her an occupation. He brought her thread, needles, and a thimble. To the poor beggar's delight she began to sew. She was still absorbed in her reverie, but she worked, which is a sign of health. Her strength was gradually coming back to her. She mended her clothes and her shoes, but her eyes remained glassy. She softly sang obscure songs as she sewed. She murmured names, probably her children's names, too indistinctly for Telmark to be able to make them out. Occasionally she would stop and listen to the birds, as though they had news to give her. She looked at the weather. Her lips moved. She talked to herself in a low voice. She made a bag and filled it with chestnuts. One evening, Telmark saw her begin walking away from his den, gazing at random into the depths of the forest. "'Where are you going?' he asked. "'I'm going to look for them,' she answered. He did not try to hold her back. After several weeks filled with all the vicissitudes of civil war, everyone in the Fougere region was talking about two men, each of whom was the opposite of the other— but who were carrying out the same work, that is, fighting side by side in the great revolutionary combat. The savage Vendean duel continued, but the vendeans were losing ground. In ile et especially, the insurrection was, if not quelled, at least greatly weakened and circumscribed, thanks to the young commander who, at Dole, had countered the daring of 6,000 royalists with the daring of 1,500 patriots. Several fortunate undertakings had followed that one, and from these multiple successes a new situation had been born. Things had taken on a new aspect, but a singular complication had arisen. In that whole part of Vendee, the Republic had the upper hand, this was beyond doubt. But which Republic? In the triumph that was taking shape, two forms of the Republic were facing each other the Republic of Terror and the Republic of Clemency. The first wanted to vanquish by harshness, the second by gentleness. Which would prevail? These two forms, the conciliatory and the implacable, were represented by two men, each with his own influence and authority, one a military commander, the other a civilian delegate. Which of them would prevail? One of them, the delegate, had formidable support he had arrived bringing the threatening order of the Commune of Paris to Santerre's battalions. No mercy, no quarter. To make everyone submit to his authority, he had a decree from the Convention prescribing, quote, the death penalty to anyone who releases a captured rebel leader or allows him to escape, unquote. full powers granted by the Committee of Public Safety and an injunction to obey him, signed by Robespierre, Danton, and Marat. The other, the soldier, had on his side only the strength of pity. He had on his side only his arm, which struck down the enemies of the Republic, and his heart, which pardoned them. As a victor, he felt he had a right to spare the vanquished. Hence the hidden but deep conflict between those two men. Each was in a different cloud. They were both fighting the rebellion, and each had his own thunderbolt. One had victory, the other had terror. People talked about them all over Le Bocage, and what added to the anxiety of the gazes fixed on them from all sides was the fact that those two men, so absolutely opposite, were at the same time closely united. Those two antagonists were two friends— Never had a loftier or deeper attraction brought two hearts together. The fierce one had saved the gentle one's life, and he bore on his face the scar he had received in doing so. One of those men was the incarnation of death, the other of life. One was the principle of terror, the other that of peace, and they loved each other. It was a strange problem." Imagine Orestes merciful and Pylades pitiless. Imagine Ahriman as Ahura Mazda's brother. Let us add that the one who was called ferocious was also the most fraternal of men. He took care of the ill and wounded, spent his days and night in the dressing stations and hospitals, was deeply moved by the sight of barefoot children, and had nothing of his own because he gave everything he had to the poor." Whenever there was a battle, he was in it. He marched at the head of the columns, into the thick of the fighting. He was armed, for he had a saber and two pistols in his sash, and also unarmed, for no one had ever seen him draw his saber or touch his pistols. He faced the enemy's fire, but did not return it. He was said to have been a priest. One of these men was Govan, the other was Simordan. There was friendship between the two men, but hatred between the two principles. It was like a soul cut in two and shared. Gauvin had indeed received half of Simordan's soul, but it was the gentle half. It seemed that Gauvin had been given the white light, and that Simordan had kept for himself what might be called the black light, hence an intimate dissension. This hidden war could not fail to burst out into the open. One morning, the battle began. Simordan said to Govan, "'How do things stand?' Govan replied, "'You know it as well as I do. I've dispersed Lantanac's bands. He now has only a few men with him. He's backed up against the Fougere Forest. Within a week, he'll be surrounded. And in two weeks? He'll be captured. And then? Haven't you read my poster?' "'Yes. Well?' "'He'll be shot. "'Another act of mercy. "'He must be guillotined.' "'I'm in favor of a military death,' said Gauvin. "'And I'm in favor of a revolutionary death,' replied Simorden. "'He looked Gauvin in the face and said to him, "'Why did you release those nuns at the convent of saint marc le "'I don't make war on women,' answered Gauvin. "'Those women hate the people.' AND WHEN IT COMES TO HATRED, ONE WOMAN IS WORTH TEN MEN. WHY DID YOU REFUSE TO SEND TO THE REVOLUTIONARY TRIBUNAL THAT WHOLE herd OF OLD FANATICAL PRIESTS WHO WERE CAPTURED AT Louvigny? I DON'T MAKE WAR ON OLD MEN. AN OLD PRIEST IS WORSE THAN A YOUNG ONE. REBELLION IS MORE DANGEROUS WHEN IT'S PREACHED BY A MAN WITH WHITE HAIR. PEOPLE HAVE FAITH IN WRINKLES. NO FALSE PITY, GOVANN. Regicides are liberators. Keep your eyes on the tower of the temple. The tower of the temple. I'd bring the Dauphin out of it. I don't make war on children. Simordain's eyes became stern. Gauvin, you must learn that it's necessary to make war on a woman if her name is Marie Antoinette, on an old man if his name is Pope Pius VI, and on a child if his name is Louis Capet. I'm not a politician. Try not to be a dangerous man. During the attack on the Cosse post, when the rebel Jean Tréton cornered and lost threw himself against the whole column with his saber in his hand, why did you shout, "Open ranks, let him pass?" Because it's not right to kill a man at odds of 1500 to 1. At La Cailleterie d'Astier, when you saw that your soldiers were going to kill the Vendean Joseph Bezier, who was wounded and dragging himself along the ground, why did you say, "Go forward, I'll deal with him, and fire your pistol in the air because one doesn't kill a man on the ground, and you were wrong. each of those men is now the leader of a group. Joseph Bezier is moustache, and Jean Treton is Jean d'argent. In saving those two men, you gave two enemies to the Republic. Of course, I'd rather make friends than enemies for the Republic. After the victory of Lendeon, why didn't you have the three hundred peasant prisoners shot? Because Bonchamp had shown mercy to his Republican prisoners, and I wanted it to be said that the Republic showed mercy to Royalist prisoners. Then will you show mercy to Lantenac if you capture him? No. Why not, since you showed mercy to the three hundred peasants? The peasants are ignorant. Lantinac knows what he's doing. But Lantinac is your relative. France is the great relative. Lantinac is an old man. Lantinac is a foreigner. He has no age. He summons the English. He represents invasion. He's an enemy of France. The duel between him and me can end only with his death or mine. "'Gauvin, remember those words. "'I will.' "'There was a silence. "'They looked at each other. "'Then Gauvin said, "'This year of ninety-three "'will be a bloody date.' "'Be careful,' cried Simordan. "'Terrible duties exist. "'Don't accuse what isn't accusable. "'Since when is illness "'the fault of the doctor? "'Yes, mercilessness "'is the characteristic "'of this enormous year.' Why? Because it's the great revolutionary year. This year embodies the revolution. The revolution has an enemy, the old world, and it's merciless to it, just as the surgeon has an enemy, gangrene, and is merciless to it. The revolution eradicates royalty in the king, aristocracy in the nobleman, despotism in the soldier, superstition in the priest, barbarism in the judge. In short, everything that's tyranny, in everything that's the tyrant. The operation is frightful, but the revolution performs it with a sure hand. As for the amount of healthy flesh it sacrifices, ask Borov what he thinks of it. What tumor doesn't cause a loss of blood when it's cut out? What forest fire doesn't require the burning of a firebreak before it can be extinguished? Those formidable necessities are the condition of success a surgeon is like a butcher. A healer may give the impression of being an executioner. The revolution is devoted to its fateful work. It mutilates, but it saves. What? You ask it to take pity on the virus? You want it to be merciful to what's venomous to it? It doesn't listen. It holds the past and will finish it off. It has made a deep incision in civilization, and the health of the human race will come from it. You're suffering? No doubt. How long will it last? Until the operation is over. Then you'll live. The revolution is performing an amputation on the world. Hence the hemorrhage. Ninety-three. The surgeon is calm, said Gauvin, and the men I see are violent. "The Revolution wants fierce workers to help it," replied Simordaunt; "it rejects any hand that trembles; it has faith only in inexorable men. Danton is terrible; Robespierre is inflexible; Saint Just is irreducible; Marat is implacable. Be careful, Gauvin; those names are necessary; they're worth as much to us as armies; they'll terrify all of Europe and perhaps the future, too,' said Gauvin. He stopped, then went on. "'In any case, you're mistaken. I'm not accusing anyone. In my opinion, the true viewpoint of the Revolution is lack of responsibility. No one is innocent, no one is guilty. Louis the Sixteenth was a sheep thrown among lions. He tried to flee, to save himself. He made an effort to defend himself. He would have bitten if he could—' but not everyone can be a lion who wants to. His feeble attempt was regarded as a crime. The angry sheep showed its teeth. The traitor, said the lions, and they ate it. Having done that, they began fighting among themselves. The sheep is an animal. And lions, what are they? This reply made Simordan think. He raised his head and said, Those lions are consciences. Those lions are ideas. Those lions are principles. They're producing the reign of terror. Someday the revolution will be the justification of the reign of terror. There's reason to fear that the reign of terror may be the calumny of the revolution. Govan continued, Liberty, equality, fraternity. Those are dogmas of peace and harmony. Why give them a frightening aspect? What is it that we want? To bring the peoples of the world into a universal republic. Well then, let's not frighten them. People aren't attracted by scarecrows any more than birds are. We mustn't do evil in order to do good. The scaffold shouldn't be left standing after the throne has been overturned. Death to kings and life to nations. Let us knock off crowns and spare heads. The revolution is harmony, not fear. Gentle ideas are badly served by merciless men. Amnesty is to me the most beautiful word in the human language. I refuse to shed blood except when risking my own. Besides, I only know how to fight. I'm only a soldier. But if one can't forgive... "'Victory isn't worth the effort of winning it. "'During battle, let us be our enemies' enemies, "'and after victory, let us be their brothers.' "'Be careful,' Mordan said for the third time. "'Govan, you're more than a son to me. "'Be careful!' "'And he added thoughtfully, "'In times like these, pity may be one form of treason.' "'Anyone hearing those two men?' Might have thought he was listening to a conversation between a sword and an axe. Meanwhile, the mother was looking for her children. She walked straight ahead. How did she live? It would be impossible to say. She herself did not know. She walked for whole days and nights. She begged. She ate grass. She slept on the ground, without shelter, in the underbrush, under the stars sometimes in the rain and wind. She wandered from village to village, from farm to farm, seeking information. She stopped on the thresholds of houses. Her dress was in rags. Sometimes she was invited to come inside, sometimes she was driven away. When she could not go into a house, she went into the woods. SHE DID NOT KNOW THE REGION, FOR SHE WAS IGNORANT OF EVERYTHING EXCEPT SISQUAN AND THE PARISH OF Azay. SHE HAD NO DEFINITE ITINERARY. SHE RETRACED HER STEPS, TRAVELED ROADS SHE HAD ALREADY TRAVELED BEFORE, WALKED USELESS DISTANCES. SOMETIMES SHE FOLLOWED A PAVED ROAD, SOMETIMES A CART TRACK, SOMETIMES A PATH THROUGH THE WOODS. SHE HAD WORN OUT HER WRETCHED CLOTHES IN THIS WANDERING. SHE HAD WALKED FIRST WITH SHOES then with bare feet, then with bleeding feet. She went through the war, through the gunfire, without hearing, seeing, or avoiding anything, looking for her children. Everything was in revolt. There were no more gendarmes, no more mayors, no more authority. She had contact only with passers-by. She spoke to them. She would ask them, "'Have you seen three children anywhere?' "'They would look up at her. two boys and a girl,' she would continue. "'Their names are René-Jean, gros and Georgette. "'You haven't seen them? "'The oldest is four and a half. "'The youngest, the little girl, is twenty months old. "'Do you know where they are? "'They were taken away from me.' "'The passers-by would look at her, and that was all. "'Seeing that they did not understand her, she would say, "'They're my children. "'That's why I'm asking.' The people would continue on their way. She would then stop without saying anything more and dig her fingernails into her bosom. One day, however, a peasant listened to her. The good-natured man began to reflect. Wait a minute, he said. Three children? Yes. Two boys and one girl. That's what you're looking for? Yes. I've heard talk about a lord who's taken three children and has them with him. Where is he? She cried. Where are they? Go to the Torg, replied the peasant. Is that where I'll find my children? Maybe so. Where did you say? The Torg. What is the Torg? It's a place. Is it a village, a castle, a farm? I've never been there. Is it far? It's not near. In what direction? In the direction of Fougères. How do I get there? "'You're now in Vontorte,' said the peasant. "'Go past Ernay on your left and Coxell on your right. "'Then go through Lorchamp and across to La Rue,' he pointed toward the west. "'Keep going straight ahead, toward the setting sun.' "'She began walking before he had lowered his arm. "'But be careful,' he called after her. "'There's fighting over there.' "'She did not turn around to answer him. "'She continued walking, straight ahead.' The Torg. Forty years ago, the traveler who entered the Fougere forest on the Lanniolay side, and came out of it on the Parigné side, was met by a sinister sight when he came to the edge of those deep woods. As he emerged from them, he had the Torg in front of him. Not the living Torg, but the dead Torg, the cracked, disabled, scarred, dilapidated Torg. A ruin is to an edifice what a ghost is to a man. There was no gloomier sight than the Torg. What one saw was a tall, round tower, all alone at the edge of the woods, like an evildoer. This tower, standing erect on a perpendicular block of stone, was so stern and solid that it looked almost Roman, and this impression was strengthened by the fact that in that robust mass the idea of power was mingled with the idea of a fall. IN A SENSE, IT ACTUALLY WAS A LITTLE ROMAN, FOR IT WAS ROMANESQUE. IT HAD BEEN BEGUN IN THE NINTH CENTURY, AND FINISHED IN THE TWELFTH, AFTER THE THIRD CRUSADE. THE IMPOSTS OF ITS BAYS, WITH THEIR Aurelians, TOLD ITS AGE. One APPROACHED, CLIMBED THE ESCARPMENT, SAW A BREACH, VENTURED INSIDE, AND SAW ONLY EMPTINESS. IT WAS SOMETHING LIKE THE INSIDE OF A STONE TRUMPET, SET UPRIGHT ON THE GROUND. From top to bottom there were no partitions, no roof, no ceilings, no floors, the toothing of arches and chimneys, embrasures for falconets At various heights, rows of granite corbels and a few crossbeams, covered with the droppings of nightbirds, marking the stories. The colossal wall was fifteen feet thick at the base, and twelve at the top. There were cracks here and there, and holes that had once been doors, through which one could glimpse staircases in the shadowy interior of the wall. The passer-by who went there at night heard the cries of screech-owls, goat-suckers, night-hawks, and night-jars, saw brambles, stones, and reptiles at his feet, and overhead, through a round darkness which was the top of the tower, and looked like the mouth of an enormous well, he saw the stars." There was a local tradition that in the upper stories of this tower there were secret doors made, like those of the tombs of the kings of Judah, of a single big stone which turned on a pivot, opened, then closed, forming part of the wall. This was an architectural fashion which was brought back, along with the ogive, from the crusades. These doors blended in so well with the other stones of the wall that it was impossible to distinguish them when they were closed. Such doors can still be seen in the mysterious cities of the anti-Lebanon, which escaped the earthquake that destroyed twelve towns in the time of Tiberius. THE BREACH The breach through which one entered the ruin had been made by the explosion of a mine. A connoisseur familiar with Erard, Sardi, and Pagan would have seen that this mine had been skillfully made. The powder chamber, shaped like a priest's hat, was proportioned to the strength of the stronghold it was designed to blow open. It must have contained at least two hundred pounds of powder. It was reached by means of a winding passage, which is better than a straight one. The crumbling produced by the mine revealed among the broken stones the powder hose, which had the proper diameter, namely, that of a hen's egg." The explosion had made a deep rent in the wall, through which the besiegers must have been able to enter. This tower had obviously withstood real sieges at various periods. It had been marked by many cannonballs, and they were not all of the same age. Each projectile has its own way of marking a rampart. They had all left their scars on the stronghold, from the stone balls of the fourteenth century to the iron balls of the eighteenth. The breach allowed entrance into what must have been the ground floor. In the wall of the tower opposite the breach was the grilled opening of a crypt, cut into the rock and extending into the foundations of the tower and under the room on the ground floor. This crypt, three-quarters filled up, was cleared out in 1855 through the efforts of Monsieur Auguste le Prévost, the antiquary of Bernay. THE DUNGEON This crypt was a dungeon. Every stronghold had one. Like many underground prisons of the same period, this one had two floors. The first floor, which one entered by way of the grilled opening, consisted of a rather large vaulted room that was on a level with the ground floor room. In this room there were two deep parallel grooves, which ran vertically up the walls and across the ceiling, and which reminded one of ruts." and that was what they were. Those two grooves had been hollowed out by two wheels. Long ago, in feudal times, it was in this room that men were torn limb from limb by a method less noisy than the one in which four horses were used. There were two wheels so big that they touched the walls and the vaulted ceiling. An arm and a leg of the victim were attached to each of these wheels. The wheels were then turned in opposite directions and the victim was thus torn apart it required a great effort hence the ruts were worn into the stone by the wheels a room of this kind can still be seen at vionden below this room was another one it was the true dungeon one entered it not through a door but through a hole the prisoner naked was lowered into it by means of a rope tied under his arms through a hole in the middle of the floor of the room above If he persisted in living, food was thrown down to him through this opening. One can still see a hole of this kind at Bouillon. Wind came through this hole. The lower room, hollowed out beneath the ground floor room, was a pit rather than a room. It had water at the bottom and was filled with an icy wind. This wind, which killed the prisoner below, preserved the life of the prisoner above. It enabled him to breathe. The upper prisoner, groping beneath the vaulted ceiling, got air only through the hole. Anyone who was lowered through it, or fell through it, never came out again. One false step could turn the upper prisoner into the lower prisoner. That was his affair. If he clung to life, this hole was his danger. If he was weary of life, it was his resource. The upper floor was a prison cell, the lower floor, was a tomb, a superposition which resembled the society of the time. This was what our forefathers called an oubliette. Since the thing has disappeared, the word no longer has any meaning to us. Thanks to the revolution, we can hear that word with indifference. From the outside of the tower, above the breach which was the only entrance to it forty years ago, one could see an opening wider than the other loopholes, from which hung a loosened and battered iron grating. THE CASTLE BRIDGE On the opposite side from the breach, a stone bridge with three arches in good condition was attached to the tower. The bridge had once borne a building, of which there were still a few remains. These remains, on which the traces of a fire were still visible, consisted of blackened timbers, a framework through which light shone, and which stood beside the tower like a skeleton beside a ghost. This ruin is now completely demolished. Not one trace of it remains. It takes only one day and one peasant to undo what many centuries and many kings have done. The Torg is a peasant abbreviation, meaning the Torgueauvin, just as La Joupelle means La Joupelière, and the name of the hunchbacked group leader Pinson le Torte means Pinson le Tortue. The Torgue, which was a ruin forty years ago, and is now a shadow, was a fortress in 1793. It was the old fortress of the Gauvins, guarding the western entrance to the Fougere forest, which is itself only a small wood today. This citadel had been built on one of those huge blocks of schist which was abound between Mayenne and Dinan and which are scattered everywhere among the thickets and the heaths, as though titans had thrown stones at one another. The tower was the whole fortress. Under the tower was the rock. At the foot of the rock was one of those streams which are torrents in January and are dried up in June. Simplified to this point, the fortress was almost impregnable in the Middle Ages. The bridge weakened it. The Gothic Govens had built it without a stone bridge they entered it by means of one of those shaky footbridges, which could be severed with one stroke of an axe. As long as the Govans were vicomtes, they liked it this way, and were satisfied with it. But when they became marquises, and left the cavern for the court, they had three arches built over the stream, and made themselves accessible in the direction of the plain, just as they had made themselves accessible to the king." The Marquis of the 17th century and the Marquises of the 18th no longer had any desire to be impregnable. Copying Versailles became their chief concern, rather than continuing their ancestors. To the west of the tower was a rather high plateau which ended with the plains. This plateau almost touched the tower and was separated from it only by a deep ravine at the bottom of which flowed a stream which was a tributary of the Coenon. The bridge, a connecting link between the fortress and the plateau, was built high on piers, and on these piers had been constructed, as at the Chenonceau, an edifice in the Mansard style, more comfortable than the tower. But the lord's ways were still quite rough. They retained the custom of living in rooms in the stronghold that were like prison cells. As for the building on the bridge, which was a kind of small castle, a long hall was made in it, which served as the entrance and was called the guardroom. Above this guardroom, which was a kind of mezzanine, a library was placed, and above the library a hayloft. There were long windows with small panes of bohemian glass, pilasters between the windows, sculptured medallions on the wall. Three stories, below, halberds and muskets, in the middle, books, above, bags of oats. All this was a little savage and very noble. The tower beside it was forbidding. It overlooked that attractive little building with its full gloomy height. From its platform one could hurl thunderbolts down at the bridge. The two edifices, one stern, the other elegant, clashed rather than faced each other. The two styles were not in harmony. Although two semicircles may seem to be identical, nothing is less like a Romanesque arch than a classic archivolt. That tower, worthy of the forest, was a strange neighbor for that bridge, worthy of Versailles. Imagine a Landbarb tort giving his arm to Louis XIV. The total effect was one of terror. From those two mingled majesties rose something ferocious. From a military viewpoint, the bridge, let us stress this, made the tower almost indefensible. It embellished it and disarmed it. In gaining an ornament, the tower lost strength. The bridge placed it on a level with the plateau. Still impregnable from the direction of the forest, it was now vulnerable from the direction of the plain. It had formerly commanded the plateau. The plateau now commanded it. An enemy installed there would quickly gain control of the bridge. The library and the attic were for the besiegers and against the fortress. A library and a hayloft are alike in that books and hay are both combustible. For a besieger who uses fire, it makes no difference whether he burns Homer or a bundle of straw, as long as it burns. The French proved this to the Germans by burning the Heidelberg Library, and the Germans proved it to the French by burning the Strasbourg library. This bridge, added to the torgue, was therefore strategically a mistake. But in the seventeenth century under Colbert and Louvois, the Gauvin princes, like the Rouen and La Tremoille princes, believed that they were no longer besiegeable. And yet the builders of the bridge had taken certain precautions. First of all, they had foreseen the possibility of fire. Below the three windows on the downstream side, they had hung crosswise, on hooks that could still be seen half a century ago, a strong ladder, whose length was the height of the first two stories of the bridge, a height which was greater than that of three ordinary stories. Second, they had foreseen the possibility of assault. They had isolated the bridge from the tower by means of a low, heavy, iron door. This door was arched it was locked with a big key which was in a hiding place known only to the master of the fortress. Once it was locked, this door could defy battering rams and could almost brave cannons. One had to cross the bridge to reach the door and go through the door to enter the tower. There was no other entrance. The iron door. The second floor of the building on the bridge, raised because of the piers, communicated with the third floor of the tower. It was at this height that the iron door had been placed, to give greater security. The iron door opened into the library, on the bridge side, and, on the tower side, into a big room with a vaulted ceiling and a pillar in the middle. This room, as has been said, was on the third floor of the stronghold. It was round, like the tower. It was lighted by long loopholes overlooking the countryside. The crude wall was bare, and nothing hid its stones, which were symmetrically fitted. This room was reached by means of a spiral staircase built inside the wall, a simple matter when a wall is fifteen feet thick. In the Middle Ages a town was captured street by street, a street house by house, a house room by room. A fortress was besieged floor by floor. In this respect, the Torg was very skillfully designed and very tenacious and difficult. A spiral staircase, difficult of access, led from one floor to another. The doors were askew and were not as tall as a man, so that one had to lower one's head to go through them. A bowed head is easy to strike, and the defenders were waiting for the attackers behind each door. Below the round room with the pillar there were two similar rooms, which were the second and first floors, and above it there were three others. Above these six superposed rooms the tower was closed by a stone lid, which was the platform. It was reached through a narrow turret. The fifteen-foot thickness of wall, which had to be pierced when the iron door was installed, and in the middle of which it was set, enclosed it in a long arch so that when it was closed it was under a porch six or seven feet wide in either direction, and when it was open these two porches merged and formed the entrance arch. Under the porch on the bridge side, in the thickness of the wall, was the low gate of a spiral staircase, which led to the corridor of the first floor under the library. This was one more difficulty for the besiegers. On the side toward the plateau, The building on the bridge presented only a vertical wall, and the bridge was cut there. A drawbridge, fitted against a low door, connected it with the plateau, and this drawbridge, which, because of the height of the plateau, was never lowered except at an angle, let into the long hall called the guardroom. Once in control of this hall, the besiegers, in order to reach the iron door, had to take by main force the spiral staircase, which led up to the second floor. The Library As for the library, it was an oblong room of the same width and height as the bridge, with only one door, the iron door. The entrance arch of the tower was masked on the inside by a false hanging door, which had only to be pushed open and was padded with green cloth. The wall of the library was covered from floor to ceiling with glazed bookcases, made in the beautiful style of seventeenth-century woodwork. The library was lighted by six big windows, three on each side, one above each arch. In the spaces between these windows there were six marble busts on carved oak pedestals. Hermolaus of Byzantium, Athenaeus the Neocratic Grammarian, Suetus, Casabon, Clovis, King of France, and his Chancellor, Anacalus, who was actually no more of a Chancellor than Clovis was a King. The books in the library were undistinguished, except for one which has remained famous. It was an old quarto volume bearing the words St. Bartholomew in big letters as its title, with the following subtitle Gospel according to St. Bartholomew preceded by a dissertation by Pantanus, Christian philosopher, on the question of whether this gospel must be considered apocryphal, and whether St. Bartholomew was the same as Nathaniel. This book, considered to be a unique copy, was on a stand in the middle of the library. During the last century, people came to see it out of curiosity. The Hayloft As for the hayloft, which, like the library, had the oblong shape of the bridge, it was simply the space beneath the timbers of the roof. It was a big room full of straw and hay, and lighted by six dormer windows. There were no ornaments, except for a figure of St. Barnabas, carved into the door, with these words below. Barnabus sanctus falchum ubet ire per erbum. A tall, wide tower with six stories, pierced here and there with a few loopholes, with entrance and exit possible only through an iron door facing a castle bridge, closed by a drawbridge. Behind the tower, the forest. In front of it, a plateau covered with heather, higher than the bridge, lower than the tower. Under the bridge, between the tower and the plateau, a deep, narrow ravine full of bushes, a torrent in the winter a brook in spring a stony ditch in summer such was the torgovan known as the torg